You're welcome. Now, about two months ago, I got up here and I told you guys that, hey, if someone happened to borrow our iPad from the back or our cordless drill, it'd be really cool if you would bring it back. And they both came back. Yay! So I'm going to try this again. Because everything seems to disappear around Element. So if you happen to borrow a GoPro camera, GoPro Hero 3 Black Plus 1080p, it's a nice one, I know. Somebody borrowed it. You borrowed that, or if you borrowed off a stage, there was this direct box uh, by Fishman. It's Aura. Uh, it's, it's a really nice one. If you happen to borrow that, or you happen to borrow my OGO backpack, which is a snowboarding backpack, and it's awesome. It's orange and black. If you happen to borrow that, you can bring those back. We'd be more than happy to take them back. Everybody got a popsicle? You're going to be a noisy bunch this morning, I can tell. Because you got to... What do I do with the rapper? You're like those annoying people in the movie when it's like all at an intense moment and you're all... I went and saw... Uh, remember the movie The Passion years ago when it came out? I had no idea what I was in for. I'm like, oh, Mel Gibson, The Passion. I saw Braveheart. Sweet. I get there. I get my, I'm just telling this story to waste some time while you're opening your things. Anyway, so I get there and I get my milk duds and I got my soda and I'm sitting there and I'm like, uh, I get like two milk duds in the whole movie. I'm like, never ate my milk duds, never drank my soda. I'm just like, I am dirt. And, uh, it's great. It's great. Welcome to Element. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new and don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Uh, if you forgot one, you can use one. It's why they are there. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. In the middle of the sermon notes, they will have, obviously, sermon notes. Some of them go along with my message. Some of them don't. They're a little extra in-depth. And on the back, there are questions. And those questions are for you to ask other people, either in your gospel community, your family, your friends, something to just go a little bit deeper. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Version. Click on Live and Version. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get the sermon notes and the verses and all that go along with today's message. So stay with me. Reading to God's Word, we will get started. It says Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. And it says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as a people would be those who understand what it means to live and walk a life of forgiveness, uh, that the enemies that we see around us wouldn't be people that we hold grudges against, but that we would begin to pray for. And we'd ask for your goodness and grace in their lives as well as we as your children begin to live and worship you by how we walk out this life you have given us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so Sermon on the Mount, week 22. Today we are going to finish chapter 5 of the book of Matthew. 22 weeks. So open to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, this is a continuation of Jesus explaining proper relationships. If you were here last week, it's kind of continuation out of that. The Sermon on the Mount is very, very practical about how to live our lives. And the section we're looking at today actually goes in context with all the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, but specifically verse 21 on. Verse 21 is about stop murdering each other. Well, I haven't murdered anybody. By holding all these grudges and anger in your heart, by refusing to step out and offer reconciliation to somebody, we stop insulting others, we're reconciling to people around us and all the retribution and the cycle of 
of that stops. So Matthew 5, 43 to 48, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And that's another way of saying living in the kingdom of God. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. Maybe he never met our IRS. I don't know. (laughs) Verse 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And a lot of people get caught up on that last line. You've got to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You've got to remember the whole section goes together. You can't take one little piece out of context. Jesus fulfills the law. The Sermon on the Mount is really about the kingdom of God and law, the true direction of the law, away from judicial restraints and into the place where we live in true freedom. It's the law was given because of the hardness of our hearts, but God wants us to set us free so we live in the perfection of who He is. And Jesus, what He does here is He doesn't reduce obedience. He actually raises it. He teaches unqualified perfection is available for those who are the children of God, and we'll explain that throughout today's message. The Sermon on the Mount all flows together. It's this idea that when we understand our spiritual bankruptcy, when we let go of our personal perfection and we trust Jesus with our lives, we have God's perfection laid upon us. And I'm kind of jumping ahead of myself. We're going to back the truck up and walk through this. Uh, God made each one of us unique. God likes that. God likes the quirks that make you you. He is totally into that. It's why he lets you go through some of the things you do in your life. Uh, for me personally, I think if there were two of me in this world, I'd have to track the other one down and bury him. Because I have a hard time with myself, and if there was another one of me, we'd have to go just get him. And it's interesting to me that a lot of religions in the world today, their sole focus that they try to get rid of is our uniqueness, our individuality. You know, a lot of people, even in Christian traditions, say, well, we all go to heaven, we all look the same, we all like the same songs. Well, if that's true, there obviously can't be country music up there, right? But you say, no, I love country music. This is all country music. Well, dear God, that's not heaven. Okay, see, we all have these... If we're all going to like the same thing, I don't know what it's going to be. I really don't. You know, we all dress the same. We all like the same things. We all like the same food. Have you ever been to my house? You know, my wife, is. she loves it when there's parties that are thrown because she's like, oh, I can make this spinach broccoli dip. And I'm like, you know, I get to take it with me. She's really excited. They're going to have spinach broccoli dip in heaven? I hope not. You know, we, we all look the same. You, you go to Hinduism. Hinduism teaches the ultimate goal is to lose yourself in the cosmic consciousness. You cease to be you. Buddhism teaches that with every single reincarnation you go through, you actually lose yourself and you're then globbed together with other people and you become a, another person again. You lose all that you've gone through. In the scriptures, all that you go through is for a purpose. God loves the uniqueness that is as we all worship him individually in our own way, but corporately together. And he loves that, and he wants us to understand that. So he loves what makes us us. And even in the struggle of letting go of our animosity towards other people and the people we view as our enemies, part of that struggle still makes us who we are. Now, Jesus saying this to us, it's not about building our self-esteem. I mean, Jesus knows that we must get rid of our idealized notions of ourselves if we're ever going to be able to love our neighbors. We die to ourselves so we can live for Jesus. And the problem is that we think everyone around us are just simply difficult people to deal with. We don't realize that we ourselves are also difficult people. We are difficult people. I mean, the problem is you. 
No, I didn't say me, right? No, no. The problem is us. It's all the problem is all of us. This is why throughout the scriptures, one of the greatest witnesses for the kingdom of God and children being the children of God is how we treat each other. And sometimes we give people too much power over us to pull us away from who God is calling us to be. And there are some people who will judge you and some people make you feel discouraged and some people will dislike you and some people make you feel rejected. Some people you probably know they're like a black hole of need and they're always sucking the life out of everybody they're around. And if you don't know anybody like that, it's probably you. (laughs) You're welcome. Now you know. If if you look back through the history of annoying people in the world, there's always great stories that surround George Bernard Shaw and Winston Churchill. Uh, George Bernard Shaw once sent two tickets to his opening night of one of his plays to Winston Churchill with this note. He says, bring a friend if you have one. So Winston Churchill says, well, I'm busy the night of the opening of the play, so I'll come on the second night. He says, if there is one. Funny, right? Now, we can jest with friends and do this kind of thing, but what Jesus gets to in the Sermon on the Mount is the idea of reconciliation versus retribution and how we, as his children, are supposed to live. We're supposed to live in the idea of reconciliation. See, this is, this is where Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. For if you li- love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Jesus reminds us that other people don't create who we are. They don't create our spirit. They reveal who we are. I mean, sometimes we're like, Oh, they made me so mad I exploded. No, you exploded because you couldn't control yourself. That's the reality of the issue. And usually when God wants to grow some quality in us, he will send somebody into our lives that tempts us to act just the opposite way. Like if you need to develop love, God is going to send some unlovable person into your life that you're going to have to learn how to love. You're like, thank you, Jesus. You're driving me crazy. But okay, it's like the odd couple. That's, that's kind of what God does. He makes us learn how to love. If you need to develop hope, somebody like Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh is going to show up and be like, oh, life is hard everything's horrible. And they're going to be around you all the time. And you have to find a way to maintain hope in the face of that. If you, God wants to grow you in your ability to confront somebody in the right way, he's going to probably send some hard-to-confront intimidator into your life, so you have to learn how to do it in a way that honors him. I recently had somebody say to me, they said, you know, why does God always allow all these difficult people in my life? My first thought was, what other kind are there? And my second thought was, you're difficult. Do you not realize how difficult you actually are? And if God got rid of all the difficult people in the world, there would be no people in the world. That's simply how it is. Now, most, people, most commentators believe that much of the Sermon on the Mount is exposition of the Ten Commandments, like eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And this section here goes to Leviticus 19.2, where God says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Exodus 20.13, You shall not murder, because when we hold anger and bitterness against somebody else, that's the idea that we are murdering them in our own hearts. And when Jesus expounds on these commandments, when he says something, it usually enjoins the opposite. Like Exodus 20, verse 3, God says, you have no other gods before me. Well, that also means that God should be the first priority in our life. And so a lot of Jewish commentators came along when God said, you know, love your neighbor. They thought, well, that also must mean hate my enemy. And God's like, that can't be further from the truth. So when Jesus shows up, he explains this, and he deals with the idea of murder in our own hearts and anger and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile. It means we stop trying to kill somebody that we are mad at. You're supposed to live an ethic of radical love and forgiveness. It goes hand in hand with turning the other cheek. And what is interesting is most people who disregard this ethic, no one ever says it's because it's too low or it's too unworthy. It's always because it's too high and it's too hard, it's too lofty. 
And what this tells you is the Christian understanding of relationships is so lofty it becomes unrealistic for people who don't or won't follow Jesus. I think it is a very high ideal, but it's the only hope the world has ever had. And if people disagree with me, no one's going to argue with me because then they just sound like a mean jerk. So no one's probably going to argue with me on it. I mean, I really think that everybody understands if people would just live how Jesus calls us to, imagine what the world would be like. Everything would change. You know, some people today try to run around and espousing this ethic without Jesus, and it never works because we are never able to get over ourselves because we're just all about ourselves. You know, this package is an interconnected set of how we love Jesus and how he loves us and how that then gets lived out in our lives. And people say Christianity is not a religion. Well, it is. It's a faith in that sense. But the Sermon on the Mount shows how much deeper it actually is. And this is how it all goes together. You see, a Christian is someone who has come into a radically new relationship with God. This is why Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. God has come to you. God has blessed you. That's where it starts. We have a new relationship with God. And then it goes into this idea that because we have a new relationship with God, we have a new relationship with ourselves. We understand what we're like. We understand what God is calling us to. And this goes into you're to be salt and light in the world. You know, you're to understand what true righteousness and faith actually is by what true worship is, that God's righteousness is laid upon you. And because we have a new relationship with Jesus, a new relationship with understanding ourselves, it results in a new relationship with the world around us. And that's why he goes into anger and oaths and turning the other cheek and lust and going the extra mile. It all goes hand in hand. It's like it's a package. It all goes together. And some people try one piece. Well, this didn't work. I don't I don't like it. Well, that's like eating crust and wondering why it doesn't taste like pizza okay it all goes together this is why jesus said if your relationship is out of whack with your fellow man you're not really able to worship god rightly because it all goes together they can't be separated they rise and fall together you don't get one without the other and this is why he says what more are you doing than others it's a way of saying it's not about doing it's about becoming the type of person who naturally begins to live in the kingdom of god that is laid out in those beatitudes that's what he says it's a lifestyle of loving our neighbor that starts on the inside with the heart that doesn't look down on anybody else and i really think if you go through all these verses it's like nobody gets away from the sermon on the mount without being bloodied I mean, the last five weeks have been really intense and really heavy. And every time I go through this, it continues to rip the calluses off of my own heart. And I think, man, I have got to learn my own redemption that God has given to me because understanding that, I will begin to love people rightly. I mean, Jesus is surgical in his precision. Now, he says, you've heard that it was said. Now, that's, that's not just talking about the law. If it was just the law, he said, it is written. But he said, you've heard that it was said. So this is what the law and also what commentators said about the law. Like the teachers of the law said, if you don't murder someone, if you don't physically kill somebody, then you're not liable to judgment. But Jesus comes up and he goes, that's not just it. It goes so much deeper. You heard you shall love, uh, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One of the things I think Jesus is trying to get across is this idea that the sin that is so wrong is a sin of scorn, of looking down on other people around us, thinking they are less than we are, that we are so much better than them. I think Jesus says it all starts there, and that's the problem. That's what leads to a lack of love. This is why we have to be totally on guard when pride rears its head in our life, because pride eats up love. 
I mean, the, the way that the scriptures talk about what love is, it is counting other people's needs ahead of our own. James McDonald says, love is defined as you before me. Love is action. Love is choice. Love is commitment. Romans 5, 8, while we were still sinners, while we we're enemies of God, while we we're giving him the finger and running away, Christ died for us. That's the idea of what love is. Now, it doesn't mean you have to see everybody around you as more intelligent. I mean, some are, some aren't. It's just how it is. You run into those people all the time. It doesn't mean you have to see everybody as more cultured than you are. I mean, I don't know what fork to use. It's like I got ten forks there. I'll use the one in the middle. You know, and I go. With, I don't know which one I'm supposed to use. It doesn't mean you see people as more sophisticated or have to be more mature. But it's the idea that you place other people's needs before yours. I mean, this is indicating the idea that you love your neighbor, and in that you are courteous and you are not fake. Courtesy comes from the degree that you see somebody as important. I mean, it's, it's like this. You may disagree with the president's policies, but if the president walked in the room, you would show courtesy simply because of the office. And this is the idea that we see people around us as made in the image of God. And so there is a certain courtesy that comes along because of that. And one of the main differences between a Christian and somebody who's just religious is a Christian understands their own inwardness of sin. I mean, Jesus here is saying something that is so true about all of us. And what it is, is it's not a qualitative difference, it's a quantitative difference. And I'll explain what that means. Jesus says there's, a, there's not really a difference between you and a murderer except the quantity of the murder. I mean, it's only quantitative. We all murder each other. It's just an extent to where it goes. A Christian understands the inwardness of sin. And so a Christian doesn't say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I don't, lead, uh, I don't, I don't cheat. I don't lie. I don't steal. I don't rape. I'm straight edge. I haven't killed anybody. Because a non-Christian will look at that life and they'll say, oh, they look like a really good person. A Christian goes farther and says, you know, I also see my self-centeredness. I see how self-absorbed I am. I see how that eats up all this love. I see it. And when we actually see it, when we understand that, we begin to live in a new way of what it really means to be born again. It's a conviction of sin in our lives. And we say, I am in need as well. And when we understand that, we really begin to love our neighbors, especially the ones that we really don't like, the ones that don't mow their lawn or take care of their gophers. And their gophers run into your yard or dribble oil down their driveway or they run down your property value and park their Yugo in front of your house. And it's like, what are you doing? I mean, today, all the houses they build, there's no parking. They park right in front of your house. What are you doing? You get all irritated. You realize that it's quantity, not quality. We're all the same, and it brings a humbleness to it. It doesn't mean you can't go to your neighbor and say, hey, move your Yugo. You know, but they got gophers coming over. What should you do? Hey, want me to help kill your gophers? I will do it with my shotgun. No, no, I... I will help you, you know, and, and you're loving your neighbor and reaching out. G.K. Chesterton, a, a great Christian writer, wrote a series of detective novels. Now, the hero in these detective novels is a guy named Father Brown. He's a Roman Catholic priest. And at one point, somebody says to Father Brown, Hey, Father Brown, you know, how is it possible that you're always solving all of these murders? You know, how do you be able to understand how the murderer thinks? And this is Father Brown's response in the book. He says, it's a theological issue. No man's really any good till he knows how bad he is or might be, till he's realized exactly how much right he has to all this snobbering and sneering and talking about criminals as if they were apes in a forest a thousand miles away, till he's squeezed out of his soul the last drop of the oil of the Pharisees, till his only hope is somehow or other to have captured one criminal and kept him safe and sane under his own hat. What he's talking about is the criminal that resides in his own heart. How do you catch all these murderers? The guy says, I realize because I am one. That's how I know how they think. 
And what I'm telling you today, this is not my idea. This has always been the Christian ethic. Unless we understand that the seeds of the worst sins live in our own hearts, and unless that begins to humble us, unless we begin to see we're not intrinsically that much different or better than anybody else, and unless we realize the fact that, yes, God had to come to die for me. If there was no one on the planet but for me, it's not just that he would have. It was that he would have to come and die to pay for my sins. And until we realize that, we'll never be able to come to have this radical ethic of love that he calls us to. Until we realize the same reason some people don't, that want to, want to dominate the world, like Hitler, is the same reason that we always want to have our own way at work or at home or wherever we are. It's that self-centeredness that's there at the bottom. Until we understand that we will not be able to love our neighbor correctly. I mean, you have this idea, love your enemies. It sounds so impractical, doesn't it? Especially in the world in which we live. We think, well, if I love my enemies and I'm always forgiving them, people will just walk all over me. As we looked at last week, no, that's not really what we're talking about. It doesn't mean you just get walked all over, but it means you always try to keep your heart open. It's always open. Now, all the way back in 2010, some of you here, some of you weren't, uh, I briefly spoke about how we love our perceived enemies and, and growth of difficult relationships. And since you don't remember what I really even talked about last week, I figure I could recap this a little bit for you and help you out. This is the, I'll give you four things about how we grow through these difficult relationships and love your enemies. Okay? So number one in this is you keep Jesus as the center. Jesus is the center. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We need a song that just says Jesus, because that's what it's about. Um, about five years ago, not my dog, her name is Haiti, uh, but my, dog, my old dog, her name was Zan. She's like 115 pounds of like spit and teeth. She bit everybody I knew, except for maybe Michael Reed, but she bit like everybody. Like, hey, Zan, uh, she'd bite you. I thought she was a great dog, by the way. Anyway, uh, so, but she's got a little out of control, so I decided, I'm going to take my dog to obedience school. So I take my dog to obedience school. You know, and, and the thing about obedience school, school, you should all go with your dog. Because it's a very humbling experience because you're going to school, not your dog. So we're in there about four weeks in. About four weeks in, this new dog shows up. His name is Bob. Somehow Bob got kicked out of his class and ended up in my class. I don't know how it happened. So Bob's in my class, and every single time that the owners are looking away and the teacher's looking away, here comes Bob off leash over to taunt my dog. Now, I have told you, like, my dog is huge, much bigger than Bob. It's a guy thing. Just go with it. Whatever. Okay. So anyway, so Bob comes over, and he's like, and walks away. So what does my dog do? She wants to show Bob that she can eat Bob anytime she wants to. So I'm, like, standing there, and walks away, and I'm like, in my chair across the room. And then, and as soon as it goes, like this, the teacher looks over at me, and she goes, today we're learning to wait. And I'm like, she weighs more than me. Come on, what's going on? Anyway, so the class goes on, and by the end of it, you're supposed to walk through this whole obstacle course of everything you learned through the 10 or 12 weeks of the class. Zan and I came in last. But everybody graduates. Everybody's a winner. We tell kids this today. Oh, oh, everybody's a winner. What that says is, you're so bad, we had to make everybody a winner. It doesn't help kids' self-esteem, okay? I just think she didn't want to see us again. She wanted us out of the class. But I also see it as, you know, biblical. The last will be first, so we're number one. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> like, like two months after I get out of this class, right, uh, I'm reading in the paper, and there's this place I see that you can take your dog to, and you can drop it off, and they train your dog for you. And your dog comes back to you fully obedient, fully alert. They wholeheartedly love you and are eager to do whatever you want them to do. They're like a brand new creature. And I thought, why isn't there a place like that for people? <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing? God, oh, you're such a difficult person. I'm going to send you off to boarding school. That, that's what I'm going to go. Do you know why there isn't? 
Because we kidnap him. That's why there isn't. But also when they're inside of it, it's because everybody has a soul. Everybody has a holy of holies where only that person and God can meet together. Only God, only Jesus can touch the innermost part of another person's soul. We can't do it. As much as we're angry, as much as we yell, and as much as we're throwing things out there, we can never do that. So for us, what do we do? We pray, like Jesus said, and you pray for those who persecute you. You pray for them because that's the closest you're ever going to be able to come to touching another person's soul, to go with Jesus into another person's heart. That's why you pray. The rest is up to God. When Jesus is your center, we begin to feel less afraid. We're able to actually confront some hard things we need to in our lives. We're more bold in what God calls us to do. And we also become less controlling of other people around us as well. So number one in that, Jesus is the center. Secondly, we make a choice to love like God loves. That's what we do. If you go to driver's ed, they tell you you leave like one car length of space for every 10 miles per hour of a car in front of you. Sometimes when you have a difficult relationship, leave some space. Right? Don't just get up in somebody's grill. Leave some space. And this is why Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, there's been tons of studies done on what make us like somebody else, of build relationships with other people. And they have filtered through physical attractiveness, IQ, personality type. But the number one factor that determines if we like somebody or not is really whether they like us. Or not. That's what it comes down to. I know we're all so self-centered. You know, it's, it's crazy. Oh, that, that Billy Graham doesn't like me? I always thought he was shallow. You know, just something dumb. Okay, it went over better last service. Whatever. And it's humbling to realize. I mean, I had someone in my life who I didn't really care for that much. And then I heard that they actually said something nice about me to someone. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they're not that bad. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. you got to understand, though, that God is not that way. God loves those who love him. He loves those who don't love him. And he doesn't do it because he has to. God doesn't say, well, I guess I'm God. I guess I'm stuck with having to love those people. Sure wish I didn't have to. He doesn't do that. Love is a choice, and it's a choice that God himself makes. So it says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. This is why last week I asked you, is God's priority your priority? The third thing you do is you listen to God's Spirit. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Uh, when you are in a relationship with other people, sometimes you will get very angry. They will drive you nuts. And anger in and of itself is not bad, but it's prone to pull you away from who God calls you to be. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, Paul starts like this. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's don't shut him out. Don't fail to listen. Don't swim in the opposite direction of living water. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Past tense. Forgave you. I mean, I believe that God has wired us in a certain way that when we get to a point where we're about ready just to blow, there's always that moment that's right there. It's like, oh, and I think God built that in us as a, as a response to cry out to him. But because we're not crying out to him, we lash out at people around us. And we need to take that moment and stop and listen to him. Because it's amazing how much hurt you inflict when you indulge that desire and how long it takes to finally work that back out again. And I'll give you good news because you're going to blow it and we will blow it, but God loves you as well. We must listen to his spirit. And the fourth thing is we learn from Jesus. We learn 
from Jesus. And this is what it comes back to, verse 48, in perspective, in context. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If you look at Jesus' life, he had to deal with difficult people his entire life. Lots of practice in Jesus. Romans want to silence him his entire life. Herod wants to kill him. Pilate washes his hands of him. Religious leaders envy him. His family thought he was crazy and had lost his mind. His town people wanted to stone him. Judas betrays him. Soldiers beat him. The crowds call for his crucifixion. His own disciples run out on him. And what do we do? We're like, oh my goodness, this person said something mean to me. Oh, I hate them. Oh, there's a word. I mean, you have nothing on Jesus. Nothing. Nothing on Jesus. And Jesus never prayed for God to remove all these people because if he did, again, there'd be nobody left. Now, the words that translate as perfect there, it literally means to be complete. To be complete. When the New and Old Testament writers talk about these people being upright and righteous, it doesn't mean that they attain total moral perfection, but rather they had reached a singular level of maturity in their growth and their integrity that God was continuing to grow them. Uh, Hebrews 10.14 says that God has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's how the NIV say it, says it. The ESV says sanctified. The word sanctified is an idea of being made holy. In God's eyes, you and I are perfect through the blood of Christ, but day by day by day, He makes us more and more and more holy. And sometimes He does that through very difficult relationships in our lives. Open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. See, we are a people who are supposed to mirror God's moral excellence to the world. It's a basic call of the person who follows Jesus to reflect the character of God. It's what it means to be made in the image of God. And long before the Sermon on the Mount was ever preached, God told the people of Israel to reflect His character. Uh, in Leviticus 11.14, He says, Be holy even as I am holy. And so He sets them apart to be these holy ones. In the New Testament, they still have a word for that. It's the word hagias. We translate that as saints. And so what you see is when Paul is talking to people and he calls them saints, that's what he's referring to. We are to be the people who image who God is. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Who has God made us to be? His ambassadors, his children, his representatives to the world, all through the power of Christ. It is Jesus we must turn our lives over to if we ever have any hope of being whole, complete, or perfect. Not that you don't still grow the rest of your life. We all grow. But it's that God has redeemed us and made us complete. And now we can live a complete life in Him. That's how it works. And that's the good news of the gospel. All of us can be made new. And I will tell you, up to this point in your life, you may be a terrible neighbor. I mean, you may be the guy with the gopher and the Yugo and the oil dribbling down the lawn. I mean, you, you may be a terrible spouse. You know, you may hate your enemies. But that doesn't have to define who you are the rest of your life. Ancient rabbis had this saying, Full repentance is shown when a person is subjected to the same situation in which he had sinned, in which he had fallen once before, only this time he does not sin. This is the idea. Our standing before God, it does not change. But how people see God because of our lives and how we live, that can change. It can change for the better. 
And I know sometimes we still want to ask God to remove difficult people from our lives because many times we're just too anxious to confront somebody in a God-honoring way. But I'll tell you, if God answered that prayer the way we wanted, we would lose the opportunity for growth. And God wants His children to grow, to grow to the point so that the world knows who his kids are. How will they know? John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how they know. That's how they know. Perfect, holy, blessed to be a blessing, living in the security of our calling and who he is in the salvation of what we receive because it comes from a place of humility. And when we live in that place of humility, all of our relationships begin to change. It's a humble place because we realize first and foremost that Jesus had to die to save us. All the sins that separated us from God in that relationship were paid for by Jesus at the cross. That's what communion is all about. It's why we bring you to communion every single week. It's why you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of blood that was shed so that we can actually be this people who have our sins taken away, and we realize why they had to be taken away, that we were and are poor in spirit, and yet God has given to us the kingdom of God. It is amazing. It is amazing. And if we live in the humbleness of that, it will change all the relationships that we are in. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite to take communion. There's going to be some deacons uh, and elders in the back. And if you need prayer, I mean, maybe you've been at a place in your life where you harbor something against somebody and you just can't get past it. Or maybe you've never been in a place of humbleness where you've surrendered your life to Christ. They would love to talk and pray with you about that. Because this is the day. I mean, this is the understanding of what proper relationships look like. And they only look like this when we are a people who follow Jesus. When we are children of God and live in the kingdom of God. Um, there's offering boxes in the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, so giving is part of our worship. You have that opportunity every week. We don't pass a plate. It's just there as, as a response to what God is doing in us. And as uh, Christy said earlier, there's some donut holes and food in the back, and we put that food there so you can grab something to eat, meet some other people, and maybe invite somebody out to lunch today. Go to that air show that was just really loud yesterday. Uh, you know, something, and maybe take those questions and walk through those in your gospel community with your friends, with your family, with something. Just go a little bit deeper in what that looks like and the humbleness that we are called to. Because we are a people who are God's ambassadors in this world. And so we bow our hearts and we bend our knees and we ask Him to make us these humble people so the world knows. The world knows who our great God is. And it's amazing that he has actually called and he wants to use us to platform who he is. I mean, again, if I was God, which is always a weird way to start a sentence, I know. You know but, but if I was God, I, don't, I wouldn't choose people to platform me. I mean, like, my goodness, they are jacked up. Let me go find something else. Have you seen the flowers in the field? Those are pretty. Those represent me well. It's like, and God says, no, I'm going to use these people. It's like, why? Why? Because he is gracious and he's good and he doesn't give up on us. And he grows us. He wants us to grow into the people he calls us to be. So let's grow. Let's grow. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people. And help us to understand our calling. And help us to understand your grace. That we would live in a way that we have you as the center of our lives. That we begin to love like you love. And we would listen to your spirit in those moments when we want to explode. And most important, we would understand what it means to bring the gospel to those around us. Not just with our words, but with our actions. 
that the gospel is spoken and the gospel is lived. How we love, how we gospel one another in our lives. Teach us to live as your children, not hung up in retribution and anger, but coming along to the place of reconciliation and redemption. That you would teach us to be a people who pray for our enemies, pray for those who persecute us, that we would love them in a way that our heart is always open. And in that, you would be lifted up and you would be glorified as the great God who has saved us. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.